Well, on this special morning, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 5. Let's hear the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 2, 5. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May God bless the sacred reading of His holy Word. Well, Dear flock of Covenant Reformed and dear Reverend Brother Greg Lubbers and Jenny and family and extended family and parents, the installation of a minister of the Gospel is always a huge event because God is sending a man that He's going to use for eternal transactions in the souls of sinners. For the maturation of saints, for the salvation of the lost, for the glory of His name. That is huge. That's bigger than anything this world can offer. When I was a boy, my dad used to often say to me, if you become a minister of the Gospel, you have an occupation more important than living in the White House. Because even as the leader of the free world, you're dealing mostly with physical needs. But as a minister of the Gospel, you're dealing with spiritual, eternal needs. But this occasion is even in some ways more special than normal. Because God has wondrously brought your minister to you. Many of you don't know this, but your minister 
as a two-year-old boy, had a very serious case of asthma and was, wasn't sure if he was going to live. And his mother actually surrendered him to the Lord to do whatever he would. If he would take him, let it be to his glory. If he would not, let it be to his glory. My wife just told me driving over here, which I didn't know. My wife is a daughter of our congregation. She said Greg Lubber's name was often as a boy in the bulletin because he was one sick boy because of his asthma. But God spared him wondrously. And then God spared him wondrously in the last few months when he had this serious illness with a serious brain tumor. It could have taken his life. And I, I'll never forget the day that he called me and said, I still believe the Lord's going to bring me to Pella. I'm called there. I'm bound to go there. And I believe it will happen on the date we set forward. So don't cancel your ticket yet. God's going to do wonders. And if not, I surrender to Him. But He believed that. And here we are. This is a special day. Ephesians 3.20 says, God does exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, Paul was a pretty good grammarian, but he broke all boundaries of grammar with this, uh, this particular text. Because you see, if you think about it, wouldn't it be wonderful if God would do everything that you could think? That you could pray? Oh, Paul says he's going to do more than that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would do more than you could possibly think or pray? Oh, Paul says he's going to do more than that. He's going to do abundantly more than that. But wouldn't it be wonderful if God would do even more than, more than that? Yes, says Paul. God's going to do exceedingly, abundantly more than you can ask or think. Actually, in Greek, it's hooper, hooper. It, it's, it's, it's like exceeding, exceeding. It doesn't make sense. It breaks the boundaries of Greek grammar. But he's just magnifying the greatness of God. What God's going to do. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for Greg Lubbers, Reverend Lubbers. That's my prayer for you children, you young people, that God would use this man, the preaching of the Word through this man, for His glory in your life, for your conversion, those of you who are not yet saved, to lead you to Christ alone as your salvation. And so this morning, I want to bring you God's Word by painting for you Paul's picture of a template, a model for Christian ministry. From 1 Corinthians 2, Verses 1 through 5, which I just read in your hearing. And I want to show you that this model is a Trinitarian model. And we're going to do that in three thoughts. First, the minister's conscious task. Verse 1, to be a witness to the Father's testimony. Minister's conscious task. Point 2, 
the minister's comprehensive testimony. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 2. And number 3, the minister's competent trust. His trust is in the Holy Spirit to bring glory to God through His ministry. Verses 3 through 5. So conscious task, comprehensive testimony, competent trust. This is Paul's template for apostolic Christian ministry. And it ought to be the template for every Christian minister still today until Christ returns. Now, the Corinthian church is well known for its many problems. Paul's purpose in writing 1 Corinthians, as you well know, is to guide that problem-infested church to biblical solutions. But what you probably don't know is that Paul's solution for every single problem, and, and Paul deals with seven of them in 1 Corinthians, is simply Jesus Christ. That's it. That's Paul's remedy. This is this problem already in chapter 1 that he raises. Divisions in the church at Corinth. The Corinthians were divided over ministers, over their mistaken emphasis on human wisdom. They were enamored with the comparative impressiveness of the preacher, with various styles of preaching. And what's Paul's answer? Is Christ divided. You see, Paul says, I want to preach so that I am not drawing attention to myself. I refuse to develop a Pauline faction within the body of Christ. Because that would leave people impressed with the wrong person. The wrong person. The cross of Christ, he says in verse 17, must be made manifest. And it would be made of none effect if I ended up focusing on myself. And then Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 1, leading up to our text, by establishing two important themes. The first is, he's come only to preach the gospel simply because this is the only message in the world that works to give sinners and saints what they need. He calls it the foolishness of God, which is wiser than the wisdom of men. Profound. Man's highest wisdom, says Paul, never brought fellowship with God, never relieved guilt, never removed sin, never made man right with God. But even God, through the foolishness of preaching, through the weakness of men, through the broken clay pots of men, will bring that word home to the hearts and lives of sinners and change their lives and make them new creations. This is amazing. Gospel preaching, which seems foolish in the eyes of men, is life-transforming, eternity-establishing. And, says Paul, and that's the second thought he gets across, He saves sinners through preaching in such a way that He gets 100% the glory for it. That's His whole point as He closes the chapter. He that glories, let Him glory only in the Lord. 
You see, it's not about the minister. The minister is the channel through which God blesses you. God is no spectator in His program of redemption. Men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, are saved through preaching, through God-ordained, God-anointed preaching, so that God alone gets the glory for Himself, says Paul. And he says, Corinthians, that's just your problem. You're focusing on man and not on God. And so then in our text, verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul goes on to explain what this model of Christian ministry is like. And he does something very bold, something astonishing. He actually uses himself as the model. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 are permeated with the words, I and my, but it's not in a self-centered way. Paul's appealing to his own ministry among the Corinthians to show that his ministry is consistent with the outworking of the gospel itself. And that's a model, dear brother, to which you and I subscribe, not just our signature, but our hearts and our lives, a model which we must strive to emulate every day, on the pulpit, off the pulpit, throughout our entire lives of ministry. And so Paul gives us three marks to this model, three points of this sermon. The first mark is this, that a faithful minister, a faithful minister self-consciously will take on this task that he serves as a witness to the testimony of God the Father. And so Paul writes in verse 1, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you. This is my self-conscious task. I came to declare to you the testimony of God the Father. The message of God. The Word of God. I came to be a herald of God. I came to simply bring you what God says in His Word. So you're talking about Paul or Apollos or some other preacher. You're talking about their gifts of excellency and wisdom and their human vocabulary, their excellency of speech, their philosophical depth. But Paul says all of that, all of that. I put no premium on that, on, on, on anything except this, that I come to bring you the Word of God. You know, Martin Luther once said to his congregation, as soon as I depart from preaching to you the Word of God, you have every right to stand up and walk out of this building because I have no authority behind me and you have no reason to listen to me. You must bring the testimony of God the Father recorded in the Word of God. So Paul says, I came for one purpose. I didn't come to impress you, Corinthians. I didn't didn't come to show you how clever I am. I'm not like those other Corinthian preachers that you admire so much. That's what he's saying between the lines. I came with the authority of the Word of God to bring to you. This is my self-conscious role, my self-conscious task. I come as a man who knows in the depths of my being I'm unworthy of it. I'm unable for it. 
But I'm called, anointed, ordained to be a herald of the Most High God. I claim no originality, no cleverness, no profound insights, but I come to tell you what God says in His Word. Brother, this is your job description. Right there. That's it. You're to preach the words of God only. And that job description is so simple that it makes it beautiful. Because... You don't have to impress people. You don't have to be something other than what you are. You are a God-ordained ambassador to bring the Word of God. So you do nothing more and nothing less than bring people the testimony of God the Father recorded in the Scriptures. Nothing else matters. And what that means then my dear brother Greg, is that you must continue to labor also in this church, as you have in the past church, to penetrate the mind of God in Holy Scriptures. And you know that's hard work. You know sermon preparation is sweating work. It involves earnest prayer on the one hand, and on the other, the arduous task of tracing the etymology of words, tracking down the intricacies of grammar, laboring over points that express the text at hand as fully and accurately as possible, and then wrestling, thinking, agonizing to lay hold of that testimony, having done all that exegetical spade work, and then saying to yourself, what does my congregation need to hear? How can I bring it home? How can I bring this passage home through this exegesis, through this testimony of the Father, to their hearts, to their lives, to their marriages, to their businesses, to their entire being? And so, dear brother... Remain, remain a student of the Word of God. Search that Word, love that Word, embody that Word, pray that Word, preach that Word, teach that Word, in season, out of season. Let the Word of God master you that you may master it. Let it form you and mold you more and more under the tutelage of the Spirit that you may form your people from it by that same Spirit. And Jenny, you can help your husband here. Because sometimes people are reticent to tell a minister when he departs from the Word of God. But you're his better half. So you have the right, you have the authority to just pull him aside and say, Honey, I, I think, you know, I really love your preaching. I mean, do say that. But add to it. You know, I think there's a little part there where you... Added something of yourself or your own, but not the Word of God. So when he brings in illustrations, are they really making the point of the Word of God? If you sense not, be his accountability partner in this critical area of his ministry. But there you have it. That's the first task. Self-conscious task. Secondly, The faithful minister's comprehensive testimony is simply this. Verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The message of God the Father, Paul says, is a message about His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. 
This is, this is stupendous. Here's a man who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the number one educator probably in the then known world. Paul was so educated. Paul could have been successful at almost anything he did. But Paul said, I purposefully, consciously restrict myself and am determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is my driving conviction. This is my deliberate renunciation. This is no passing thought. This is how I live. From philosophical philosophers who demanded a hearing to civic and political problems and vices, so much could have been said. And Paul could have contributed so much in so many areas. But he says, I have nothing to say but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But what exactly does this mean? It's critical to understand this. After all, this is the defining statement of Christian ministry. And we must understand it. You as a congregation must understand it. If you're to know what to expect from a minister of the gospel. Does this mean that Paul does nothing but in every single sermon paints the cross, explains how Jesus died, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, in every single sermon? No, that's not what it means. Not what it means. Obviously, he says to the Galatians that before your eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's often taking his people, his congregations to the cross. Oh, yes. Paul taught that to preach Christ crucified is to preach all kinds of things that are tangential to the cross as well, however. Paul's using... A Greek method here, which it's kind of a fancy word. Maybe you know it, young people, from your English grammar classes. But synecdoche. He's using in the adjective, we could say it, a synecdochal approach to what he's saying. Now, what does that mean? It means that you take the essence of something and you get at the heart of it by one statement, and that around that essence there are all other kinds of things that are included as well. So what does that mean, practically? Well, it means that Paul taught that to preach Christ crucified is also to preach somber overtones about divine wrath against human sin. It means it is to proclaim Christ as propitiation, as the one who absorbed the full weight of divine wrath against sin, so that that wrath might be turned away and God might receive sinners with favor into His presence. It means to preach that through the cross we are made the righteousness of God in Him. It means to preach about the innocent suffering for the guilty, that there might be just grounds for imputed righteousness. All of these things are directly related to Christ and Him crucified. But here, here's the point. Because it's synecdochal, what Paul is saying is, all the counsel of God in the Scripture flows out of this grand truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So implicitly, you see, 
The whole gospel is contained in Christ and Him crucified. Paul is preaching a message of which Jesus Christ is a center. But from out of that center, you see, preaching all the truths of the Bible are included because all the truths of the Bible surround Jesus and point back to Jesus. Like Charles Spurgeon said when he dedicated his Metropolitan Tabernacle, he said, for 15 years, I've been preaching nothing but this name of Jesus Christ. That brethren is the magnet. He will draw his own to himself. If we cry out to see conversions, this must be our preaching. More constant preaching of Christ. He must be in every sermon. He must be the top and bottom of all the theology that we preach. And so that means, Reverend Lovers, that you must always be growing in the knowledge of Christ yourself. It's like you're one of the spies, one of the twelve spies that goes out to spy out the land of Canaan, the land of the Word of God. And you come back every Lord's Day with fresh grapes from Eshcol, and you bring them to your people. And those grapes of Eshcol are luscious and tasty and savory. And as you preach, your people can feel that you've been with Jesus in the last week. They can, they can smell, as it were, the savor of Christ upon you. And they can say, our pastor has been in his study. He's been, he's been plumbing the depths of scripture. He's been spying out the truths of his text. And he's bringing us from that text the fullness of Jesus Christ. That, that is our comprehensive task, our comprehensive testimony. What a glorious, what a glorious thing this is when a minister really does that, when he preaches the whole counsel of God and brings his people to Jesus week after week after week. I had a lady in my church who's now with the Lord, very God-fearing woman. She used to say to me when I, when I would visit her, she'd say, well, I, I appreciate you preach Christ, but I wish you'd get to Him sooner in every sermon. I'm praying as, you, as you're preaching. Now get to Christ. Get to Christ. And when you get there, I say, now stay right there. <laughs> Another lady in my church who shook my hand at the door just about a year ago after a sermon, and she said, you know, I've just been figuring out something. You know, every week, really, you bring us the same message. It's all about Jesus. But there's such variety in Jesus. There's so much to preach about Him. I said, that's it. That's it. Jesus Christ and Him crucified explodes into the whole of Scripture. Christ is really the ultimate subject and object of Scripture. The Bible is a Christocentric book. So Paul says, Christ is all I preach. Apart from Him, I have nothing to say. So Christ is the overarching theme of every subject and every kind of theology. Take away Christ and we have no theology. Christ is all and in all, says the Apostle. Everything we believe, everything we have, everything we are, we believe, we have, we are in relationship to Jesus Christ. Only when we preach Christ are we preaching. Only when we preach Christ are we preaching. You know what that means? That means a sermon without Christ is not preaching. So in the old Dutch circles, maybe some of you know that, especially some of you older ones who still understand Dutch a bit. 
they used to ask when they would talk about preachers. Is high in Christus prediker? Is he a Christ preacher? That was a hallmark of whether he was a good preacher. That's just the one mark we need to know. Is he a Christ preacher? Now you see, what Paul does all throughout this entire book is preach Christ. He addresses, as I said, seven problems. What's the answer? I said Christ is the answer. But it's true not only of the Corinthians. It's true of the Ephesians. It's true of the Colossians. It's, it's true of the Philippians. It's Christ, Christ, Christ. Spread out one page in front of you of any of Paul's epistles, and you will find on an average, I did, I've done this, the name Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, you'll find his name on an average of 30 times, 30 times across two pages. Christ is everywhere. Are there divisions in the assembly? Is Christ divided? Is there an immoral man in the assembly? Purge out the old leaven for Christ, our Passover, sacrifice for us. Are there problems with immoral temptations? Such were some of you, but you're justified, sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. How are you to live as a Christian husband? You're to love your wife as Christ loves the church. How are you to live as a wife? You're to respect and show submission to your husband as the church shows to Jesus Christ. Everywhere, everywhere, Paul has this Christ-word focus. When he tells us to be forgiving of one another, he reminds us of Christ who forgave us. Colossians 3. When he exhorts us to be generous in our giving, he reminds us of Christ who gave so much for us. 2 Corinthians 8. When he exhorts us to humility, he tells us to put on the mind of Christ. Philippians 2. When he exhorts us to everyday holiness, it's on the ground we're crucified and risen with Christ to new life in Him. Romans 6. You see, Christ is the answer to our every need, to our every problem, to the lost and to the saved. He's the answer. He's the one you need, even if you don't realize it when you're not saved. And so Paul says, He is all I preach. He's the whole sum and substance of my ministry. He is our only hope. He's everything. And so Greg Lubbers Preach Jesus. Preach Him with theological articulation. Preach Him with divine grandeur. Preach Him with human passion. Preach Him in the fullness of His glory. He's the balance you need. You know, ministers are always talking about our need for balance in preaching, and we do need that. But here's the balance. Jesus Christ. He's the balance of everything. Because He's the whole of our message. He's the whole of our message. Yes, we break up theology. You know it well, Greg. We talk about prolegomena and theology proper and anthropology and Christology and soteriology and ecclesiology and eschatology. But actually, Christ is the fulcrum. And all of these branches of theology come out of Him and return to Him. He's everything. He's everything. So set Him forth in the dignity of His person. Set Him forth as the brightness of His Father's glory, as God manifest in the flesh. Set Him forth as prophet, priest, and king in His humiliation, exaltation, the glorious benefits of His redemption, the justification of them who believe in Him, the adoption of sons, sanctification in Him, an inheritance that makes us joint heirs with Christ that fades not away, reserved in heaven for the saints. Set Him forth in His excellency, in His beauty, in His person. 
preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then thirdly, Paul says, I don't only have a conscious task to be a witness to the Father's testimony and a comprehensive testimony to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but I have a competent trust in the Holy Spirit. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What does that mean? Well, in verse 3, Paul describes for us his state of mind as he comes to Corinth. Maybe it's like Reverend Lubber's state of mind when he comes to you. State of Corinth was a challenging city. The task of head, head seemed impossible for Paul. And actually, it was impossible for him. For him. And he knew it. He said, so I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul had a profound sense of his own inadequacy. He knew what it was like to be so overwhelmed when about to preach that there were times he would have desired to run from his lofty, humanly impossible calling. He didn't come as one like the other smooth Corinthian orators who came with much self-confidence. And they were polished. That's not me, says Paul. That's not me. He didn't come carrying revival in his briefcase as certain evangelists have said they would do in our day. But he felt keenly that he was out of his league, not up to the task of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. The work is too great for him, too high for him. He's not sufficient. He was a brilliant man. He could have impressed many, I told you. And yet this was over the top. To be a preacher of the Gospel to the Corinthians. He just didn't have what it takes. It was too big. And the truths of Christ are too great. Too infinite. He felt he could only scratch the surface. But happily... Paul doesn't end there. Paul doesn't end there. He did enjoy success in Corinth. But that success was not due to his abilities. He says, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man wisdom, but in demonstration of what? The Spirit. And a power. Whose power? The Spirit's power. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying something stunningly beautiful. Stunningly beautiful. He says every time, may I put it in my own words, every time I come and preach to you, Corinthians, there's a mixture of things going on inside of me. I come with weakness and fear and trembling and my own inability. I come unequal to the task. I, I come sometimes so nervous to the point of physical weakness and sickness. But at the same time, I come knowing that I am anointed to do this very task and knowing the promise that the Word of God will never return to Him vain or void. And so I come with confidence. I come with a competent trust in another, in the Holy Spirit, who's the second preacher in every sermon. I hope you're familiar with what Kelvin said about preaching. It's beautiful. He said, two ministers preach in every sermon. One has a voice and speaks. And especially when he preaches Christ, 
the other minister, which is the Holy Spirit, takes his words and puts it in his bow and shoots those words out like an arrow going over the congregation and guiding each arrow to each heart according to each heart's need and doing the work that the preacher cannot do. Applying the Word with power. And you know, I can't put that into words like Paul could. And I think Paul would say, I can't put it into words either. But a true Gospel minister knows exactly that. That overwhelming feeling. Every time he preaches, it doesn't matter if you preach 40 or 50 years. You feel it every time. Preaching. It's a momentous task. It's over my head. I'm not up to it. I'm weak. I'm needy. But oh, I believe in preaching. I believe the Holy Spirit's going to come. I believe the Holy Spirit will change lives. I believe the Holy Spirit will, will, will mature saints. I come in demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. And so there's this mystique about preaching, this paradox in preaching of my weakness combined with the Spirit's power that gives me a competent trust. I've often said to my theological students, it seems like the times I've gone on the pulpit when I was the very weakest of all, sometimes when I was even physically sick, are the times that I preached the best. Because when I'm most dependent, most needy, and I think every preacher can say that, most broken, most unable, is when you feel the most power of the Holy Spirit intervening for you. And why is that? Because God wants all the glory, says Paul. That's how he ends chapter 1. But that's also what he says in verse 5 of chapter 2. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. So that God gets all the glory, you see. Paul is intentional in his ministry about directing people to trust in God alone. He says, I have to do it in preaching. But you, Corinthians, you and yourselves are weak and unable as well. And you need the power of the Holy Spirit as well. So to run to Paul is not what you are to do. You must run to God. You must run to God. So Paul never attempts to be the Holy Spirit. He's never arrogant, so arrogant, as to assume the Spirit's role. He couldn't. He knew it wouldn't work. Put another way, Paul was very concerned that no one would believe simply because he said so. No, God must work in them sovereignly, graciously. And if their faith is a God-wrought, Spirit-wrought faith... It will be a God-directed faith and a Christ-centered faith. And so there, your brother lovers, you have your model for ministry. In five simple verses, all the attention must be heavenward. Our faith and the faith of our people must be in the triune God alone. The Father's testimony, the Son's crucifixion, The Spirit's power. It's a Trinitarian model. Now go out and conduct yourself as a Trinitarian ministerial gospel in preaching and pastoring among your people. That's what God's saying to you today. And never pretend 
that it's your success or that you can take the credit. But wherever you see the Lord at work, let your eyes fill with tears and just say, Lord, what a wonder that you would use me. A broken clay pot. To God alone be the glory. So focus. Focus on the glory of God. Focus on the white fields of harvest. Focus on the needs for your people's maturity in Christ rather than on yourself. Preach. Preach the Word of God. Preach the message of Jesus Christ and do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank Thee so much, so much for the Gospel. And we thank Thee so much for the means that Thou dost use in preaching to bring the Gospel home to sinners with Spirit-worked power. Lord, we pray that this congregation may know experientially in the depths of their soul the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them, stripping them of all their own righteousness and leading them to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And graciously use Reverend Lubber's ministry to that end. Be near to him, Lord, and bless him as he unveils the sinfulness of man, the unrighteousness of our best righteousnesses, and point sinners to the fullness of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him exalted. Let them find refuge in Jesus. For the first time, or by renewal, that this church may grow up and become more and more a Christ-centered church family, a congregation that hates sin, and loves Jesus, and pursues the King's highway of holiness. Oh God, bless, we pray. And bless His family here. Help them to find friends, uh, quickly and good friends, especially the children, Lord. Be near to them all, and graciously supply for them, and do wondrously, do valiantly for them. And do bless the congregation as they receive the lover's family in their midst. Help them not to expect uh, too much of man or even of the family, but also help them to pray for him and the family. And may he become a source of, of joy to them as they come eagerly under the Word of God, as they receive warmly his pastoral visits. And may they and he and the family experience a wonderful bonding together in Jesus Christ. Please keep Greg lovers. Keep him from any sin that could damage his ministry. Help him, Lord, to walk worthy of the vocation to which he's called. To keep his eyes ever on Jesus. And Lord Jesus, do thou keep thy eyes ever on him. Let him hold thee fast who dost hold him fast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.